I want more money because I want to I want to treat more people. We would that's it's basic. That's that's how our system works. But there's no exception with the nonprofit world. If I want to give a better return to my foundations and to the community, I need to do more people that are impoverished and I need to up the quality of care. And that all takes money. The future of dentistry belongs to the innovators. Welcome to Innovation in Dentistry. I'm your host, Sean Zayas, and I believe that the future of dentistry is going to be unbelievably great over the next decade and two decades, but the question isn't that. The question is, are you going to be part of what makes dentistry great? Okay, I could not be more excited today to be with the one and only Dr. Chris Volchek of uh, Brighter Way Institute, formerly known as the Cass Homeless um, Clinic. Uh, Dr. Volchek, before I set you up, let me just say thank you so much for letting me interview you today. Sean, I always have a good time interacting with you, so whatever the venue is, I'm going to enjoy it. So. Well, okay. So can I, how do you want me to refer to you on this podcast? You want me to call you Chris? Or? Chris, Chris, okay. Dr. Volchek's too long. Yeah. So Dr. Volchek just has such a good sound to it, but okay. So Chris, uh, <laughs> innovation can mean so many different things, right? Especially in dentistry. Like we could talk about clinical innovation. There's business model and software innovation, like technological ones that, that really can make breakthroughs. But for this podcast, I'm fascinated by what gets somebody just to say, like, why not, why not me? Because behind every innovation is a person that says, like, I can pioneer positive change. And I want to know about the positive change that you have pioneered. So tell me about your origin story in dentistry. Yes, I will, Sean. Um so as you know, I was a private practice dentist for nine years in Globe, Arizona. Um, so small private practice, but I did not, I don't know what I want to say I did not like it. I don't know if I wasn't good at it. I don't know what all the combinations been a long time, but I just, I just know because you know, your memory makes a lot of things up, but I'm ADHD. I couldn't stand to be in that those four walls all day long. I love my patients. I love my patients. That's why I went into it to help people. Um, the only reason I chose dentistry because my dentist was cool. My physician wasn't as cool as I think I told you. My dentist, pretty old, so my dentist, while he was injecting, he would smoke his cigarette and he would drink his bourbon. He drink, I was injecting, he has his bourbon there, so he's drinking that. How could I not become a dentist? <laughs> so he was the biggest influence. However, that is not the way one should pick a career just because your dentist is cool. So I did not at all. And I, at nine-year mark, I, I said I had to do something out of the treatment room, Sean. I went back and got my MBA because I always took... I went back to my comfort zone of academia and jumped back into the MBA. And I thought I might do something with that MBA and DDS. And fortunately, at my MBA graduation, I met a formidable woman. Her name's Mary Orton. She is sort of the mother of homelessness for the city of Phoenix. She started the shelter, the cash shelter, uh, end of the 1970s. And that is when, uh, of course, across the nation, every city had a homeless issue because we let all of the mental health institutions out without any alternative. So every one of those institutions opened up and all cities had a homeless problem. So we were no exception and she started it, but I met her at my graduation and I was so blown away by her effort and her charisma. And she said, why don't, why don't you come down and volunteer while you're trying to figure out your MBA DDS stuff? And so I did. I had, this was just something to do. Um, 
My mother did a lot of stuff, social work. I always wanted to volunteer, but I was not. This meant nothing to me except going down and help the community a little bit. So I visited, I went down. Uh, I got there, there were 500 homeless people milling around. I was scared as hell. I wouldn't get out of that car, as you know, and I finally, I, I even started crying a little bit, I think, because I was scared. I, I, I did. And then finally, I got the guts to get out of that car and go in there. And they took me in as a volunteer, and I started handing out clothing and food. And within a couple months, oh, wow, I, I like this place. I, I more than like this place. I fit in here. So I had two years of volunteering while I was still practicing. And I decided, and I made rationalizations around this because like, I thought I'm a dentist, I have an MBA. I'm gonna work with the homeless. I didn't do Peace Corps. I'm just gonna do a couple years down here. So I left my practice and I started, the cash shelter hired me as a case manager. So we had, I was in a trailer in the fields, in the riverbeds and on the streets. And I stayed there. I didn't do my Peace Corps two years. I loved it so much and it was my home ground. I stayed on the streets for seven years. And those are most fulfilling, entertaining, as you can imagine, seven years. You can't do better than spend, spend your life on the street working with the homeless for seven years. It's illuminating, it's transformative. And again, as I said, it's, it's quite entertaining. So I was captured there. Those are my people. My intense ADHD, all the chaos was music to me. I was like, these, this is it. This is this is what excites me. But a couple things happened. I you can imagine what I saw on the street. You can imagine the teeth that I saw on the street. And they didn't know I was a dentist. So, but I was out there helping them, but their teeth, of course, were everyone was bombed out and their pain and infection. And there I am. But so I got the opportunity. I found out about a two chair trailer from the Office of Oral Health. They allowed me to take it. Cass, my CEO there, said, Give it a try, Chris. We need dental. So I pulled up a two-chair trailer, 40 years old, stuck it in the field where I was doing case management and started out with 60 volunteers. And we started the state's only homeless dental clinic. And that opened in 2001. So it's been 22 years now. So wait, wait. So the time from when you started yeah. at the clinic to yeah. when you, you started bringing dentistry, how, what, what gap was that? So, no, I, when I, I was, so I started volunteering in 91 and I was still practicing. In 93, I left my practice and went on the, got to be a case manager. I worked as a case manager from 2003 to 2007. I mean, to, I'm sorry to 1993 to 2000, when I grabbed a hold of the trailer, it took me a year to get the whole program set up. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I never ran a nonprofit or a dental clinic in a field with the homeless. So it took me a year to prepare that. And then January 1, 2001, we opened that two chair clinic, which you've been in. Or did you miss the trailer? I, I think I showed up, what, maybe five or six years ago? So what, when would, oh, when did the shit? Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you can say that. It's okay. <laughs> um, so 
now no. that we've marked it as an explicit episode, you're free to say whatever. <laughs> or is there are there markings for explicit explicit ones? I don't know. In the podcast, I don't know if I need to mark my whole show explicit because I've had some guests that swear. So I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. I, I wouldn't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Um so 2001 is when I opened the trailer. And you, I haven't known you that long. That's 22 years ago. Um, so when I showed up, I think you are, you were out of the trailer. You had a very established clinic already. Right, okay. When, when I showed up. Uh, and for people that don't know, Chris, you were an early inspiration to me um, in the sense that right then and there, I was considering pulling out of dentistry because I was... <laughs> I, I wasn't really liking dentists. Um, I was trying to connect with them, right? I, I was trying to get something real, like, hey, like, you know, are there any struggles? Are you are, like, how is life? And everything was, they were crushing it. And it was just amazing. Because <laughs> <laughs> all American guys are crushing it. We're all <laughs> crushing it. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, well, I'm struggling in business trying to sell to y'all. And um, if you guys are just like, Inhuman, I don't know if I if I can't care about the people in dentistry, then I can't care about dentistry. And thankfully, I just met Dr. House. So she gave me hope. And then I met you. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> my two favorite people in dentistry, Dr. House and Dr. Chris Volchek. I think there's a chance I can stay. So the only reason why I'm here today, 50% of it's because of you. That's a that's a big deal. So you're you're one of my heroes. I'm having well, I'm having dinner with Dr. House tomorrow. So here, there was the two of us. So I'm glad to hear it. Thank you, Sean. Okay. So what saying. I'm part of what I'm interested in too, is like, yes. right. The, the dream for dentistry is you, you get the education, you um, it's not cheap. And then you live the dream life of making lots of money. And after nine years, you were fine to just be like this, this isn't me. It doesn't you know, check the fulfilling. Right. Because that's, you know, I tell that story, it sounds simple. It was the least simple thing for me to do in my life. I, I was torn completely. You have a DDS, an MBA. You should, the whole, you should be doing these big things over here and making a lot of money, but it doesn't, that's just what you were taught but it doesn't fit. What are you going to do? You're going to be a loser. Are you a loser if you work for with the homeless or are you a great guy in the capitalistic system? Well, you're, it's both. You can be loser. And what, what did you do in my family? What are you doing with that DDS and MBA? Oh, I'm in the field with the homeless. They're, they're freaking out. And so am I. I was like, well, I don't know what to do. I found my place on earth, but how was I going to you know, build a family, build a life? What am I? What was I going to do? So that that trailer came along and allowed me to put my DDS and my MBA into something that I could have passion for. I completely lucked out as a being to land on that plot of land that was meant for my personality. And I never take that for granted. Did I ever think that I would have any association with the homeless? No, I did not. I feel very fortunate. I, whatever my genetic mix is and my environment from, especially from the mom side of social work, I got there. And so I don't take big credit in the sense of that, we're all very fortunate. My mix happened to work there. So I get to I get to feel all the societal pressure of like, oh, you should be doing more than being a case manager, which I think teachers and case managers are the most important thing in the world, but that's just not how it works. So I got that. But I also ended up having a huge career that has spanned 
It's not teeth. It's not even, we have big clinics and we do great work, but I get to be involved in social work still. I still go out on the street on Tuesdays because I can't not go out there. And immigrant issues, domestic violence issues, these, these are what interest me. Teeth, I'm glad that's important component and I'm glad that has been actually my savior. But it's all the other components that have made my life so big. When I think of being in private practice, with a lot of people, that's a worthy cause of private practice. You are helping people. I got that. But for me, with my own chaos needing chaos, I this was perfect and I still got to be like, oh, it's Dr. Volchek. You got some legitimacy. You're doing something. So I got the best of both worlds. I didn't have to be beaten up by my family and society and saying, you're not doing enough to this. So there you go. I don't know how someone gets so lucky. So Chris, I, I'm curious because like, I love the honesty of I pulled up and I, I was afraid. And I think so much of fear in general has to do with the unknown. Uh, it just has to do with uh, um, what if, and this, like, there's, there's this difference and there's this context of, I'm not really sure. And knowing you now, I don't know if I would have guessed that. So that's so reassuring to me to know that you can relate to anyone that visits you <laughs> that might be like, uh, oh. am I okay? Like, is everything yeah. fine? Am I safe? Um, what happened in those first few months? Or was it like in the first day where all of a sudden you realized these are people and I don't need to be afraid? Um, that's a long time ago. But I will say what I remember is that I very quickly felt at home very quickly. Uh, probably because I felt like kindred chaotic spirits. I think a lot of that is. I, I, I have my own chaos. I see the world as more uh, frenetic. And so they're, they were reality to me. They were, they, they, they were, they were life. So no, I was like, I, pulled in and there was a bunch of my family there. I just had never met them. So no, my, that piece came along pretty quickly. Did I, took me a while to think, my gosh, this is my place. Cause I just couldn't fathom that. But no, I became comfortable really quite quick, quickly. Yeah. So if there's like a dentist listening right now and maybe they can identify to like the first think about it. you said nine years like was it early on in private practice that you were aware um this is the convention is i'm a dentist so this is how i practice but it, it just doesn't fit like i'm the square peg trying to make it work in the round hole and i'm trying to fake it i'm going through the motions some parts of it i like but but man, if I look in the mirror 30 years from now and I keep doing the same thing, I don't know if I can respect myself because I'll know I didn't stay true to who I, I am. But what were some of the tells? Like what, what was, was, was there any of the writing on the wall that showed up early on that you were just like, you know what, do what every other dentist does, put your head down, grind it out. Like, or were there some signs that, hey, this is problematic even from the onset? It's all of that. Life isn't, I was confused. I thought, oh, this, this is going to get, you know, I've been through everything. I this will get better. This will get better. I know this will get, once you get to get another patient, you'll get in the groove here. Um, no, maybe when you start doing more complicated things, it won't be so boring. Uh, then I'd go back and forth like, no, hell, I can't do this. And then I'd feel like a failure of thinking I, I'm going to quit. So I wouldn't quit. So you go through all of that in nine years, because again, I'm 
like everyone else, I, I was given this path. We're all brought up in a certain, I was given sort of a path and my, uh, I followed that, but again, that I couldn't know that that wasn't going to be my sensibility instead I, until I did it. There was no way for me to know. The big bonus to that, Sean, that of those nine years is it gave me credibility as a dentist though. Had I just come out and not, I, I would have no experience, but those nine years gave me credibility to, to do something and my knowledge was credible and I, I could open something. So if I had left, early, uh, that would have been a disadvantage. So now I look at it, even though it was painful for me, now I look at it as, as quite the big advantage. So, so here you are, no, as a, I was gonna say, so here you are as a caseworker, and then all of a sudden this opportunity shows up for the mobile unit. Um, like, did you anticipate that intersection? No, and here's here was the problem with that. Uh, hell, I, here I am, the a dentist, this mobile trailer is available, and I sure as hell am not going back to dentistry. This isn't going to work. <laughs> this isn't going to work. I, but what, I, what can I do? So, well, damn it. I'm going to do what St. Vincent de Paul is. They have a volunteer clinic, and I know that director there probably doesn't do much dentistry. So, oh shit, I'm gonna do a volunteer clinic. I'm gonna help the homeless. I, I have the knowledge, I can run the business, but I don't have to get in there and do dentistry. So it, I did in the beginning, of course, because I had so many, so few volunteers, I had to do things. Um, but no, that is the thing that all of that worked for me because it didn't matter how much I love the homeless and it didn't matter how ruined their teeth were, I could not go back to doing dentistry. That was not an, that was not a possibility I wouldn't go back. So again, look how fortunate I am there with those circumstances and then ending up with a large volunteer clinic. So, so I was going to say over from that time till now, how many number of volunteers, do you have any idea have gone through the clinic? Uh, well, I'll just tell you that and it's changed drastically, but on our timeline, by year three, I had almost 300 dental professionals working out of that trailer. Oh my gosh. Oh, here, no. I can't, I told you this. I couldn't, I couldn't sell a product. I can't sell a product. There's nothing I'm, I, with my personality, you think I'm going to be a great salesman, but if, if I don't believe in that widget, hell no. But I can sell the heck out of the homeless because I believe in them. And I am, if I get in front of you, I sincerely want you to join me, whether you're a volunteer or you are a foundation. So I would say that's my biggest gift is, is that. Um, so getting, because, you know, as soon as we hang out, I was enjoying hanging out with you. I I love relationships, seeing what's happening with people sincerely. And I sincerely have a passion for the homeless. So it just, I'll tell you this, what I learned later on from a sentence or a comment is people think they volunteer. If you ask them, their first answer is because I want to do good. I want to help people. But if you statistically analyze that, it's not true. Socializing, socializing. And if you do not give a village of fun and warmth and camaraderie, you will not end up with a volunteer program. So it's not, so statistically, you come as a human being because you have camaraderie. Out of that comes all this production for the homeless. I didn't know that, but. That's what happened. Well, that that kind of throws on me, though, the interesting dilemma of like. Brighter way after Chris Volchek, because you are the brand. 
you're the heart, you're the culture. And I'm not saying you can't create that culture, but like who, who can fill your shoes? Well, so here's the thing. I'm a, I am a typical founder in many ways. I'm, I've got all the chaotic, energetic, frenetic, drive your employees crazy founder. That's, that's you can go across the board often that's the founder i got lucky there too because i do have those founder pieces and i do i do have some great stuff but i hinder things along the way because of my chaos there's just nothing one can do about it however it was manageable enough and i had my dds and mba to know what to do with the business that i went from founder and i You've heard of founder syndrome because a lot of founders that are like me, again, I lucked out, that are chaotic but innovative and pushy and aggressive and passionate, they that that isn't the model you use for once you have a certain size of organization. The chaos becomes a problem. Mm. So I had to, you hear of founder syndromes and I got lucky and got through that and got the right people in place, but I was a problem. I was a help and I was a problem, but I'm fortunate to be here 22 years later and be the CEO because again, you usually do yourself in. Yeah. Yeah, I I, I guess I know what you mean. You've already created enough of a organization that it runs. If you pull me out now, that's all the whole thing. If you pull me out, I've been working on a succession plan. I, it's my obligation. Everything goes on. Everything goes on now. What about so. your story? Like, is that in a book yet? Is that on film? Is there a documentary? Because I feel like that needs to be told. Like it's, it's, it's you, it's what, you know, if, if you bleed, it's what you bleed that needs to keep going. I think that needs to happen because it hasn't happened yet, huh? There's no documentary on Dr. Chris Volchek yet. <laughs> I, that has been brought up a lot, Sean. I, it's not a priority of mine, but um, but no. Again, back to in many ways, I'm not a special founder. I'm a typical founder often. But so when when was it, if ever, that you were like? Oh, oh shit, this is really happening. Um, and mm. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but it just kind of kept going or took on a, a, a life of its own. Um, I remember, I do remember this. I don't have a great memory, but there's some moments that will, you will not forget. And fear is powerful, as we spoke about. Fear is very powerful. They, it was an odd situation, but I had one day to make up my mind if I were going, if I was going to keep that trailer I and stick it in the ground. And I remember going home, Sean, and getting under the covers, literally, I was so scared of failure. I, it was immeasurable, the like performance failure that I might fail. And I don't have many big aha moments along the way. A lot of good things that happened, but that was one of the few times that it hit me hard. It was visceral. If you do not take this, you will have missed the opportunity. It is clear to me, and I don't have... Any thoughts about that, but it was so clear to me that if you did not take this, you have missed something that you would never experience in your life. And it was so damn clear to me. And I don't have those moments, but I had that. And I got up the next day and went down and signed that and started. But I was, yeah, I, I was scared shitless. Yeah. That's amazing that the fear of potential regret was stronger than the present fear of failure. 
Like yeah. I, I, I love that. That's that's powerful because my whole reason, Chris, for starting the podcast is that I believe there's amazing people in dentistry that are dentists or dental professionals, and maybe dentistry isn't completely it for them. And between the lines of what we're saying, they have their own idea, their own dream that they might be running from because they're they're scared of just like, is the timing now? Am I ready? What if what if I try and people see I try and, and it fails? And yeah. what if I just oh. look look foolish, right? Yeah. You know, and yeah. my whole thing is like, you'll never know if you don't just spread out your wings and, and go for it. But you'll definitely, definitely 20 years from now have their regret and be haunted by the, what if you would have gone for it? And the world has been so changed by your clinic and it's all because you decided to take that chance and just go for it. Again, it wasn't, it wasn't out of confidence. It wasn't out of ego. It wasn't out of any, it, it was fear, fear of failure and fear of missing out on something that I felt was going to be so transformative for me. I mean, I was, I knew the homeless worked, but when that hit me that you will miss out on something that very few people get to do, that was clear to me. Again, it was, yeah. So anyone that knows you, that's seen you at a fundraiser or event, you move the room, you, you can like, galvanize change and get people to follow you like you're a true leader is that something that from a young age you knew was in you so again we don't earn much we do we don't that is absolutely my genetics my father was a persuasive, gregarious leader that people followed. He did it for other reasons than I did. He had a completely different life. But those genetics of he, he whatever, he, again, completely different life in his business. He walks into a restaurant, the chef comes out. Uh, he, he had, you know, whatever he wanted that was surrounding him, women, the chefs, whomever, where we went, that happened. I didn't earn that personality and I didn't, I only got a piece. I'm glad I didn't get all of it. It was too much. It was too much. And people think I'm too much, but he gave me a piece and when he came down to visit because he's all, all that he is is about money and respect and women that that was it uh, that, that were his three things and when he came down to see the shelter and then what i what we built in the clinics he said this is big i'm glad you this is you, you did something big but why the hell are you down here? You're not making any money. This is ridiculous. And, um, but he said, just like that, there was a big building there. And I said, I don't care what you say. This, all this was built because I got a piece of your charisma. I just use it to help the homeless. And then he was kind of, he was okay with that. that oh yeah, I kind of, oh, I kind of helped build this building. But no, I got that from him. So I just was placed in a place that I could be, I don't know, super salesman for the homeless. To put it in, the, in, in words, I'm just passionate about them. And that personality um, allows me to bring in people to the circle to help the homeless, to build a village. That's all I can tell you. <laughs> Just that story, I'm thinking like in a moment when it's almost like he had, I don't know, he's like kind of like 
dishonoring or or giving you like oh. a backhanded compliment, you still led with honor <laughs> and said, well, hey, the gift I got from you, I, I'm using for this. I, I think that's just like mind blowing. I could think of so many ways someone else would have responded. I would have responded. And yet you you still honored. It just says so much about the kind of person that you are, Chris. Um, what do people not understand about the homeless? You know, here we are, you know, in our modern day when um, there's a lot of issues and I feel like they've only gotten exacerbated in certain cities where all of a sudden there's there's the tents. And I don't think a lot of us understand what's going on um, by and large from your experience. Like what what do people just not understand about the homeless? Yeah. And people don't understand, uh, it, it's very normal, because if you're not exposed to a population, any population, it's hard, but they're much more difficult to understand. So <clears throat> it took me on the street, even though I was comfortable right away, it took me, I would say a year and a half or two years to know what I was doing with, with them, to help them as a case manager. I had no experience, but I'm going to give you, so in our society, and we have children's clinics, as you know, people have an emotion for children, so they fund children's clinics, but, and people have an emotion for our veterans, they fund veterans, but people don't particularly have a feel, an emotional feel for the homeless because they don't understand them. So there's multiple issues there with funding and how they get served or don't get served. Wait, wait, and, but, and if I and if I could just interject yeah. really quick, they also have a heart for animals because, right? There's this sense of like, uh, it's not their fault. The kids, it's not their fault. Yeah. Maybe even like veterans. Oh, oh an, yeah, throwing animals, throwing animals. We should shout it. Yeah, no, you gave that good example. Yeah, throwing animals. People, I have to say, if I didn't know the homeless and I was just not exposed, I'm probably going to give that buck to the dog before I gave it to the human. I, that a human, what I, what I, perhaps what I was saying, oh, they're irresponsible. Why aren't they working? All those things that the homeless get. That's not who they are. But that is a legitimate perception because people, again, have not been exposed. And so they remember, and I chatted too, is veterans. People give money to veterans because they've served our country. That's one element. Perfect. I want them to do, I want to serve them who served us. But the biggest thing is because People think they have something happened to them and they have, they say, oh, I'm sure a lot of your veterans have PTSD. Of course, they're homeless. Who wouldn't have PTSD if they, they were being fired at or they've been shot? So people think, oh, something happened to that individual out of the ordinary. I will give to them. But it's the same as I do my presentations when people are out on the street with me. I said, let me give you examples. It's the same thing for the homeless. It's you should ask yourself what happened to them. And you could say she was raped at 10. He has a traumatic, traumatic brain injury. His parents were meth addicts. He never got beyond fourth because he was abandoned fourth grade and left in the foster children system it it's what's happened to them there's not people out there with our abilities to manage things on the street for instance and i and that's why i had a good bind or bond with them is i know the chaos i have the mental tribulations that I have, that I keep under control. Everyone has them, ang anxiety, depression, but I have amounts that I can manage. 
and I can manage them well enough to make money to put a roof over my head. They have exactly the same problems I have. Theirs are so intense, they're not manageable. And what do we judge them by? Is if you have a roof over your head because you're responsible enough to make money and get the roof. That's just not the case, but I understand well-intentioned, good-hearted people in the community wouldn't necessarily give funds for them because they don't understand that. It's not that they're not empathetic. It's just they haven't been exposed. And if you one, like any population, any minority or anything, once you're exposed, you kind of realize that it's just us. It's just everyone. They just can't. The only defining piece is they can't manage their wealth to make enough money. We spoke about this before too, but here's what's happening now, Sean, and this is, it opened some people's eyes. I had a good friend on my board and she said, I don't understand homeless. I don't think I'm going to. I don't think I'm gonna be able to be empathetic about this. I, I, you've got to help me because I, I want to be. And we went out on the street together. And here's what got her. She talked to a couple who were sleeping in their car. They've never been homeless before. Both have worked two full-time jobs their whole life, but they can't afford Phoenix any longer. They got booted out of their, they were in this rental for 15 years, but that got taken over and turned into higher end apartments like like you know what's happening all over so that's also she she was able to relate to that she felt horrible about that that these two hard-working americans because again let's go back to she said i have a stereotype about the homeless but to have two hard-working americans not be able to have a, a roof she was that horrified her so however you can get people to understand, I try to, I do, but again, mostly it's what happened to these people. They're, they're us. They're simply me. Uh, and, and, and when you don't think someone's you, you don't or have your same philosophy or your same morals or your responsibility, one doesn't fund them. We don't help them. Yeah, I wonder how many of us, if given the same story, if given the same circumstance, if experiencing the same neglect and the same traumas, trials, and tragedies wouldn't end up in the same place, if not a place that's worse. Like, like we don't know. You, do, you don't know what you're capable of or what lows you're capable of unless you go through that story. And everybody has a story, like what you're saying. You don't know the person that was uh, raped or, or raised by the drug addict parent that experienced neglect. And then like, like layer on top of that, everything else. And now all of a sudden it's like they, they can't cope. And, and their basis of trying to cope is just completely different than, than you and me. You know, maybe we're right. just higher functioning and that, that yeah. ability yeah, to is. understand and that ability to see people like you're saying as humans and us tied together, at least by the larger human experience, it's just, I'm fortunate that my story wasn't that horrific, you know, that, that I had parents that loved me and believed in me and gave me opportunity to, to shine instead of get obscured into some, some hardship, you know? Um, I would love for you <laughs> to share any stories or a story that brings anything home. What I mean, you can share the story that that I like, or any story you want. Um, like you've seen a lot of things. Yeah, no, I I have. Um. I will tell you, it's odd that I, I, here's one thing about, uh, as much as I've had contact, I haven't been, I, 
there isn't much bad that's happened to me physically. I've been hit. So da, 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 da. I had, we had one woman that was in the chair and of course, a lot of them are on medication and I had a doc in working on her and I see him back up and he goes, whoa. And she comes off in a frenzy and she grabs the, the little water pistols that we have and she's squirting him and squirting everybody. <laughs> and he doesn't know what to do. So I had, of course I had to run over and I tried to be as gentle, just as enough to get her. So I got around her and I kind of hopped outside with her. Come on, you gotta go, you gotta go. And she didn't get at me at first. And then I got her out the door and I turned around and she kicked me hard in the ass, just right when I was <laughs> <laughs> This got me out of like a sucker punch. But I will tell you a story about be when I was a case manager. And when I got there, there were 500 men in a barracks sort of hallway with no air conditioning. So you can imagine. In Phoenix? In, in no AC, just swamp cooling in the middle of summer, 500 stinky guys. It was bad. I did notice, though, it was like after six months, I couldn't smell it anymore. I was relieved. So I, it went away. But we had, I had a staff come over to me and said, one of your clients, we can't have in the shelter anymore because he smells so badly. And I, I thought, are you kidding me? They ever, I would, I smell down here. Everyone smells. What do you mean? He said, no, it's a level that people are puking. You have to take him and clean him up and we'll let him back in. So we had a public shower toilet out in the field. So I took him out to the shower. It was a big open area. He wouldn't speak. He couldn't, I don't know, it was either he wouldn't or couldn't speak, but he would do what I told him to, to do. So I brought the shampoo, I brought the soap, and gave him a little space or a little privacy over there, but I had to instruct him, okay, now use the soap, use it on your chest, use it on, and I had to instruct him everything that he did. And then I said, okay, it's shampoo time. And went over and handed him the shampoo. And I said, um, and he had blonde hair and it was up in like one of those things that hold the hair up, twisties or something, he had it up there. And I was standing back and I said, okay, let that twisty out. And then you got to shampoo your hair. And this is what it, I was probably 30 feet. So I wasn't so close to him, but he let down his hair and it came down. I swear it was like a damn L'Oreal commercial. It was shimmering blonde hair. I, I was so stunned that this guy had this gorgeous, waving hair like there was a, a model shoot and I got up there because he wasn't cleaning it enough and I said get it closer you got to get it you know wash it yeah he had blonde hair because those were all blonde shimmering maggots they were they were <laughs> and that's so that blonde L'Oreal shimmering was all blonde maggots in there and that's where the stench was. That, so I had never seen, I was so, I remember almost like a Disney film that was so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> you could write to L'Oreal and be like, hey, there's a better way to do your model shoots, you know? <laughs> if you want brilliant shimmery hair that's alive, try maggots. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that, that's one of those no, that's on. one of those moments you don't forget no so back to how could have i have had a better life i mean how could how possibly how possibly i couldn't <laughs> so, so 
and Chris, what does Brighter Way need? Like, meaning if someone's listening and they're like, hey, I want to get involved or I want to help out. Um, like, like I'm guessing donations always help. I'm guessing people that volunteer always help. I'm guessing awareness. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know if you've ever done any sort of, um, I don't want to say courses, but like uh, sessions. Because is this a model that, that could be used in other in other cities? Uh, like, like I'm guessing people have asked you that. Like, if I want to start something in my city, is there like a framework for this? Uh, the answer was given to me by a very smart woman about 13 years ago from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Because everyone was, I had people from all over the nation coming to ask me to help them or me to leave Phoenix and come. She she was right though. So I had to, she, she helped me before I knew what I was doing too. She said, these things in nonprofits, Chris, are not franchisable. And she had a very good, and I thought, of course they're not. And we went over everything. And so I'll tell you, let's look at Phoenix. So I helped San Antonio. They took a part of this model. But San Antonio is one of the only cities that had the characteristics that we had here. Mm. But, okay. So Phoenix, we have a 13-acre campus. I have a, now a 6,000-square-foot clinic. We got that land of 13 acres for $1. In, and we're right by the downtown and the capital. And that was in 2005, but still, can you, what do you get for $1? I'm helping a buddy in San Francisco right now. No, 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 that's too expensive. The land, yeah. No, no, no. Okay. You have to be able, you have to have a, can't get around it. You have to have a founder and that founder better be charismatic and knowledgeable in the field. Okay, that eliminates a lot of people. You have to be sustainable for three years in some manner before foundations will look at you. There's so there were elements here, and then she went on that it aren't okay. I was a member of this community with ties for many years. When people ask me to come up to Colorado, sure, but this was work. It wasn't, again, it's, there's nothing overnight. No, you've been building but, for a, decades in this community. Yeah, yeah. so I had to, well, I can start meeting everyone, but here's, but I, I've got my place. I, I want to help you. I'll give you all the advice, but here's what happened. I'll tell you one instance. Well, my Berkeley friend that tried to open, he opened for a year, a nonprofit, it's closed. There was no sustainable, it was too expensive and there wasn't any sustainability to his model. He couldn't get that up and running. As you know, we do implant programs to bring in revenue. We do trainings to bring in revenue. We um, do all on fours for the community to help subsidize the revenue. So all those things have to be put in place also. So no, no, uh, and she was right. Because again, I've been to multiple places. One of the places, this was, it was a lovely place what they were doing, but, and, but they wouldn't, it was here actually. And they brought me in to help. And I said, the truth is, which I feel bad about telling you is, you have the wrong person trying to lead that. And they knew it, but they thought of me coming over and maybe helping. And I just had to say, you know what the problem is. I'm sorry, I wish it weren't the problem. And it went under. So yeah, no, it's, mm -mm, it's not franchisable. You have to get a lot of things right that 
stacked is stacked of, against you. The odds are very, very are, low. I, I I had no idea. Again, I had nonprofits. I think there are 40,000 in the state of Arizona, and there's only a minute amount that are functioning. They're technically nonprofits. So again, I got, I happened to get placed. I had supportive people. I had a supportive shelter. All the elements were there. I had a mothership to help me grow at first instead of just being, I couldn't have done, I didn't know anything. Grab a trailer. I didn't, I hadn't been with the homeless. Grab a trailer, sit it down there. All those factors and then having Cass as my, again, my supportive mothership to get me going. Yep. People come back to me and say, well, what you, you did? I did do this, but I had this whole entity, credible entity to start yeah. under. Yeah. Yeah. So all of business yeah. is like brokering trust and you have established and earned that trust with every single year that you've been at it. Even, even when you were just at it as a, as a caseworker, um, you, you know, so it's like, this story is so improbable. <laughs> like. It, that's what's so crazy about it. And I think that's what's so beautiful about everyone that's connected to it here. Um, so if people do want to sew into it and people want to donate, um, where can where can they go? So it's, it's simple just to go to brighterwaydental.org, just what it sounds, brighterwaydental.org. And we're no different than any other nonprofit. We're always trying to expand and give more care to, you know, we do the homeless, we have domestic violence victims, we have two pediatric clinics, all of those are for the underserved. And we need more. I want more money because I want to, I want to treat more people. We would, that's it's basic. That's, that's how our system works, but there's no exception with the nonprofit world. If I want to give a better return to my foundations and to the community, I needed to do more people that are impoverished and I need to up the quality of care. And that all takes money. Yeah. Okay. So here, here, here's the final question. Okay. So you're walking down the street and off in the distance. So this is a hypothetical, obviously <laughs> off in the distance, you see 18 year old Chris Volchek and you only have one moment to communicate a sentiment to him, what do you share? Most of what you were told is a fairy tale. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. That would be my starting sentence. <laughs> Buckle up. It's going to be rough. <laughs> <laughs> That Disney snor story we got here in America back then, buckle up. <laughs> that Chris, would be it. I, I love what you have done. I love what you're doing. Uh, personally, I'm so thankful for the way that you have inspired me and in, in the ways that you've be believed just in what I'm doing. I, I really believe I'm still going at it uh, because of the support of amazing um, dentists and friends like you, um, it's been easy to honor you as an innovator. When, when I look at someone that has the courage to show up as themselves and pioneer positive change, I can't not think of Dr. Chris Volchek. Um, so just for everything you've done, thank you so much. Thank you for letting me interview you today. Oh, I Appreciate that, Sean. You know, I, as I said, I just, any way I get to interact with you, I'm going to say yes. You, I, everything about you is in a, I, your sincerity in that, just have a big belief in you. So it, it wouldn't matter what you were doing. I'd get, I'd get passionate with you because you, you bring that out too. So you have that quality. So I, I, I get why I like you so much. So, but thank you for having me on here. Well, it, it has been a pleasure. So again, guys, check it out.
Dr. Chris Volchek with Brighter Way Institute. Thanks for listening and be sure to follow so you never miss an episode. To learn more about what's going on in dentistry, check out innovationindentistry.com.